Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you are listening to The Reese Show. On the show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late-stage capitalism, and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So, on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. (laughs) You can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our root forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Today, I'm excited to chat with Tamim Ansari. Tamim is an Afghanistan-American author and public speaker. He's the author of the excellent books Destiny Disrupted and Games Without Rules. Thanks, Tamim, for being on the show and welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. And we're here in person, which is fun. <laughs> Tamim just, I, I biked up the hill, one of the various hills in San Francisco, and he has given me tea. And I am happy about that. And so I'm sweaty, but happy to be here. <laughs> I should have given you uh, iced tea. You I, have, I have some iced tea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> maybe after the show. You know, maybe right. after. Um, yeah, so today, Tamim and I are going to chat about... I mean, he has this, he's Afghanistan, he's Afghan-American, you know, um, and he wrote this beautiful, amazing book, Destiny Disrupted. I just went to Egypt, and so I was like, wow, I don't understand the Middle East at all. And so I was trying to find out, like, how can I understand the Middle East, and how can I understand Islam? And I just feel, you know, grateful to have found your book, because it was such an amazing dive into that. So we're going to chat about that side of things, and we're also going to chat about the kind of Afghanistan side of things and how it connects to the modern day. Okay. Um, so let's start with the destiny disrupted side and okay. your kind of the world history of these two parallel worlds, the Western world and then the kind of Middle Eastern or Middle World narrative. Could you say a little bit more about the thesis of that book and what that you know Islamic narrative looks like? Okay, well, the thesis of the book, let's, let's step back a little bit from the Islamic narrative per se yeah. and just go back to the the founding, the launching idea of, uh, that got me into writing that book, which was uh, <clears throat> we have been accustomed to thinking of the history of the world as if it is a natural fact. Mm-hmm. It is some collection of, of, of uh, facts about events, and the only um, you know, thing we have to do is to simplify it, get away, you know, clear away the, uh, the, the unimportant details, and then the important details that remain will be a certain edifice. But actually, um, you know, my perception is, my premise is, that every uh, history of the world is actually the story of how we got to here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so embedded in that, um, in that narrative, there's always an assumption about who the we is in, at the center of the story. And then also, where is the here? <clears throat> so, <clears throat> you know, it was... Uh, Obviously, the, after 9-11, there was a certain spur to be just thinking about Islam and Islamic history. Mm-hmm. And I had been invited to enlighten my <laughs> friends and, uh, you know... People like audience. me, who were like, oh, I just went to Egypt for <laughs> right. a bit, you know, yeah. Well, you know, especially at ni- after 9-11, yeah. you know, now people have forgotten that in the immediate after, uh, aftermath of 9-11, most people in the West 
hardly even knew that the Islamic world existed in a sense, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I was a, uh, a textbook editor for a portion of my life. Yeah. And one of the things I worked on was world history textbooks for high school. That's, uh, you know, I think 10th or 11th grade, that's when they do world history. And mm-hmm. I worked on, on several of those. And one of the things that stood out was that Islamic history or, and Islam in general as a phenomenon in history was something that was covered in one section of 30 chapters yeah. in a book. And <laughs> Chapter 18, you get, okay, right. here was the caliphate or whatever, yeah. yeah. Right. So then uh, after 9-11, actually, it was, I was on the plane going back to the east where I hadn't been for a long time. Mm-hmm. I was headed to Pakistan at that mm-hmm. point. And I was reading some, some uh, books about Islamic history. And it struck me that, you know, there's a, a curious parallelism uh, between the history that's familiar to us as the shape of world history that I was editing textbooks about um, and this other history that I was also actually very familiar with because I grew up in Afghanistan and that's the history I learned mm-hmm. uh, in, in school. Uh, and, and what struck me was, huh, when you look back uh, into the past from the Western perspective, Rome looms large as the empire of the world at one point. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, you know, the legacy can be seen so close to the modern day because the ruler of Rome came to be known as Caesar because of Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the last time there was a Caesar was the Tsar of Russia, the Kaiser of Germany. That mm-hmm. was still that same title. And Rome eroded because the, the barbarians came yeah. down from the north. Now you look over at, at the Islamic world and it's like, hey, you look back and there is a very similar in scope and importance empire back there, which was the Khalifat, mm-hmm. you know, and at a certain period it, it bloomed, it expanded, it was the empire of the world. And then it sort of eroded and crumbled. Why? Mm-hmm. The barbarians came down from the north. But the title that was the title of the ruler of the Khalifat, which is the Khalifa, mm-hmm. that title persisted all the way to when? World War I. The last Khalifa was the, was the last person to, to take that title was mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, was the uh, uh, Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. And right at that time, incidentally, you know, there was a certain move uh, in, uh, in the Muslim world to, to name the king of Afghanistan as the new Khalifa. Yeah. As it happens, the king of, Af- of Afghanistan at that point was the most opposite of a Khalifa kind of guy that you could, you could pick yeah. because he was the, the, you know, the archetypal uh, modernist who became one of the figures that, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the flow of Islamic history said, let's have done with those old ideas old about ways, religion. Yeah. Let's get with the modern world. So he wasn't a good candidate for Khalifa, and, and there was never after that a Khalifa. But the parallelism of those two histories uh, made me think, oh, wait a minute, you know, um, the history of the Islamic world if you're there from the point of view of, of the Muslims, it's not the history of the Islamic world. It's the history of the world. Yeah. <laughs> and then it struck me that there's lots of histories of the world. Every history of the world is a somebody-centric narrative about how we got to where we are today, mm-hmm. which is what gave me the impetus for the last book I published, The Invention of Yesterday, which was 
prompted by the by the observation that we are all connected now you know it's like mm. it's one uh, there is one humanity and at at that time i said and we're verging on merging into a single civilization yeah. shouldn't there be um uh, an attempt now to look back and construct the world history yeah. that answers to the question how did we get to here <laughs> where yeah. we are today yeah. uh, so that's you know that's what I tried to do with the invention of yesterday tell that story mm. uh, and that's my larger preoccupation this, uh, these days whole, yeah yeah that's beautiful I mean I think that the it is so true that like once you start to read I mean yeah I think that this you're correct to say that history is not some kind of um, oh here was the facts you yeah. know it's like this happened this, and it's like no it's a narrative mm -hmm. how did we get to here I just think that's a great encapsulation of it who is we who is here you know mm -hmm. and I think that the the parallelisms are so strong. I think something in your book that you did a really good job of is you said, hey, like the uh, kind of Western world or the Mediterranean world was based around the sea routes, you know, and so you have Rome and all these sea routes. And then on the, the like the middle world or what we in America call the Middle East mm -hmm. is like the um, it's based around these land routes, you know, through, um, you know, the you know Turkey and, and Iran and, you know, Persia and those kinds of things. And so I think that just thinking of those as like, OK, you have these two kind of big um, empires that were happening at, around these different things um, and then eventually once sea travel once the, like sea travel that the Western Europeans had been doing for so long could actually allow them to explore the rest of the world then they kind of that was one of the many reasons why they were able to kind of uh, win after the Industrial Revolution that's and right yeah. information and stuff that's one of the reasons exactly exactly so Ergo what were you going to say well I was just going to say first of all there's there's other ones of those big yeah. routes too you what know there's, those? yeah well there's the monsoon route you know mm -hmm. there's from from uh, the um, the uh, east coast of Africa around India and mm -hmm. over to China mm -hmm. there's the interesting phenomenon of the monsoons mm -hmm. which is which are these winds that blow out of the heart of the world's biggest continent which is Asia you know and, and because of the Himalaya, Himalaya mountains they get split and, and one set of them go out goes out across China mm -hmm. and into the Pacific and one set of them goes down in, across the Indian Ocean mm -hmm. and so they you know because of the fluctuation of temperature at the heart of, of Asia they blow out and then half the year they blow in mm -hmm. and so from China and from the east coast of Africa going back forever uh, whoever put a boat in there was a certain season in which they could go out they could go out and they could get to get where would they get to they'd get to um, what we call Southeast Asia you know mm -hmm. they get to Malaysia and all those islands yeah and then uh, they'd have to wait until the um, the winds changed mm -hmm. and the winds would bring them back mm -hmm. so then you have this whole sort of Southeast Asian world mm -hmm. uh, which is a cultural mix and stew mm. of the influences from China on the one side mm. and from Arabia and and the African coast on the other side mm. and India yeah so, so there's the monsoon world and then the other world that comes to mind I mean there's kind of to some extent there's like the Indian subcontinent world yeah. which has like both the Indus River Valley civilization at the beginning and then later um, a lot of the like kind of Muslim world kind of comes into it right there's also the kind of Chinese Empire world and that's one that I don't really understand well but do you how do you think about that world how that world defines it's how we got to here well you know um, it's interesting to, to note that like around the time I was writing uh, uh, as I was starting to write Invention of, of Yesterday, yeah. I, I'm, this conversation came up and somehow the word China was mentioned 
And someone in our in our group that was discussing said, "Oh yeah, the periphery. Well, now the periphery. Oh my God. Wait, China is not the periphery. My God, you know, most of the people on Earth live in China or India. That's hilarious. How could that be the periphery? But you know, so so China was one of those places that at one point in in ancient times, those rivers in China." Chiefly, you know, the Huanghe, the the Yellow River, mm-hmm. was one of those places where human beings could find uh, the the uh, the resources they needed to build a enduring and prosperous life if they could get together, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the spots where culture and civilization, you know, was born and then began to grow from there, grow yeah. from there, and. Uh, you know, my, uh, my, my, one of the points I make, I, should, I don't know if I should go so far as to call it my thesis, but it's just one of the, <laughs> the, the observations that came across my desk as I was, yeah. I was looking at this stuff. Well, it, it has to do with geography. You know, it's like there, was, um, there, were, there were four rivers, probably more, but let's take the four that are standard, um, uh, uh, um, you know, places where civil, cradles of civilization. Okay, so there was China, there was there was uh, India with the Indus River, yeah. there was the Mesopotamian, and there was Nile. Yeah. These rivers all had one property that was similar. Mm-hmm. They flooded annually, and mm-hmm. then you could uh, uh, grow stuff in the in the rich soil that the floods left mm-hmm. behind. But they were actually very different from each other in other ways. And the geography of the river had something to do with the original impetus or the character that the civilization took when it emerged mm-hmm. along those riverbanks. So the, the, um, the, the, the one in China, unlike those others, what it was was it flooded uh, unpredictably and mm-hmm. catastrophically from time to time. Mm-hmm. The yellow of the Yellow River was this silt that came down and then it, the, the riverbed rose, so the river rose, so people would put dikes along the river to, in order to be able to uh, continue to just survive there. And then once in a while there'd be a flood and the dikes would break. So that catastrophe at the core was something that, that, was, that the culture had to absorb and build around. Um, but as it, as it developed, you know, um, China... Um, early Chinese historians have this narrative of China, which looks at the world as concentric. Mm. You know, it's like China, the empire is the center of of the world. And around the empire is uh, the tributaries. Uh Uh, And then around the tributaries are the barbarians. Mm -hmm. And then around the barbarians are who cares, (laughs) far away, (laughs) you know. So that that was kind of like the model of the world Mm -hmm. that people lived inside of. And the sense of of reality was the empire was not strictly speaking a secular thing you know the empire was was a um, a a, a uh, i'm just making up a way to describe it but it's like a funnel from which from some imponderable mm-hmm. universal cosmic supernatural realm mm-hmm. order could come into the world mm-hmm. and there was a uh, a pulse to the empire it would come together there would be order and then it would break apart and there would be fragmentation yeah. there would be a single empire and then there would be 
dueling empires. Mm-hmm. When there was dueling empires, or when the empire was falling apart, the barbarians put, began to come in. Mm-hmm. Not because the barbarians were so great, <laughs> yeah. but because something was, was going wrong within the, the heart of the world. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, the interesting thing is, all of these ancient narratives, to me, they have something really powerful in them. Mm-hmm. There is something about that, about about order coalescing yeah. and then breaking apart and yeah. coming. Uh, you know, China is not the only place that has this idea of the world is concentric and we're at the center of it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the tributaries and then there's the barbarians. So, yeah, that's interesting. I feel like there's, I mean, he thinking about the monsoon uh, world is as one kind of self-contained world. And then the other Chinese one is kind of, and I guess that that for me is a, um, yeah, it's just like more reading to be done in the future, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but going back to like the, the both the, the middle world or and, and the like kind of Islamic world, I think that there's a, one interesting part of it, and I guess, you know, just to get your take on it here is, there's a, you know, there's this this progression of there's, you know, Mohammed, and then there is this, the first caliphate, and then the, you know, the Rashidun, Rashidun I'm going to say all the names wrong, yeah. but to Rashidun, and then the, um, well, let me try to get all mine, Umayyad, and then the um, Abbasid, and then after that, kind of like the Ottoman one, after the Mongols had done the barbarian right, thing. Right. Um, and then there's post the, uh, the, um, the Turks, the, the Ottoman Turks, there's also the rise of the West, yeah. and then the kind of, you know, battle between West and modernity versus kind of this older and also, you know, more Islamic kind of thing. And I think something that you piece at in your, in your book, which is really interesting, is this battle today between, um, you know, the um, the West and the kind of modernity. And, and you said it beautifully where it's like when, when for after 9-11, the folks... Um, uh, you know, we thought that the we being Americans, we thought that the um, you know the is, Islamic folks were angry at us because of our freedom, and so we said back to them, "No, we are free." And they were like, "Whoa, whoa, we don't care about your freedom, freedom, fine." It's about decadence, you know. And so they point at us and they say, "No, you're decadent. You're too no. decadent and like materialist and those things." So, how do you think about the modern battle between those two things and decadence versus freedom, and how kind of religion plays a role in that? Well, you know the. Now we come back a little bit to, I didn't read the book about weird, you know, but, <laughs> yeah. but uh, I know the thesis and I read your uh, review of it. Yeah. And so that comes into this yeah. whole question here. Um, you know, um, there is an impulse in modernity, uh, in what we're calling modernity. You know, there, that already is a, is a loaded term, yeah. if, if, if you take my point. Uh, there might be other ways to get to modernity than this way, but this way is one that is very wrapped up in um, um, faith versus reason, science versus uh, religion, all that stuff that happened in Europe during the time that we're calling the Renaissance Enlightenment, you know. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> at that time, the, the, the couple of things that, that really gained momentum in the West was individualism and um, uh, and um, uh, secular uh, view of the world. But over and above all those, as you haven't read The Invention of Yesterday, so Mm -hmm. I'm gonna- gonna Yeah, no, spoil it. (laughs) All good, spoil it, and I'm excited to dive more into it in a second, yeah. Okay, so uh, I think there's a really fundamental narrative that became the narrative of the West, and I call it the progress narrative. Mm -hmm. And the progress narrative, uh, I would characterize it as the view that 
the 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 project of civilization, the project of human life is to make progress. Mm -hmm. Every day more than the last day. Mm -hmm. Every day can be better. And that the the through line of history is sometimes things happen and there's regress and then you collect yourself and you continue to make progress and there's no end to it. It's just, it can go forever. And you can see how that fits right in with capitalism. Yeah. And because capitalism, the, the, the core underlying impulse there is that more is better. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, in the East, at the time that the progress narrative was being born in the West, mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the archetypal type of narrative that was putting down roots in the East was what I call the restoration narrative. Mm -hmm. And the way I see it, there, there was this Holocausty sort of period when the last of the great nomad explosions, the, the explosion of Chang'e's Khan, Genghis Khan, yeah. uh, and all that uh, accompanied that, and then at the same, you know, like right on the heels of that, the, the plague which yeah. swept across. So, you know, uh, as the recovery happened from uh, those that period of disorder and Holocaust, the Islamic world and the uh, uh, the Chinese world mm -hmm. had a very recent glorious past to look back on and said, oh, we got to get back to that. Mm -hmm. But in the West, the very recent past before the Black Death was peasants, you know, the most best. everybody <laughs> was peasants and yeah. everybody was poor. Yeah. And so now in the wake of the, in the aftermath of the Black Death, it really was true that every day could be better than the last mm -hmm. and there was a glamour to uh, innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so um, for, uh, for the Islamic world, now I'm going to just zero in on Islam, mm -hmm. there is something at the very heart of Islam, mm -hmm. uh, which is, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the notion at the heart of it is a community. Mm -hmm. um, the mystical event in Islam is the birth of that community and the way that it was successful. Yeah. The, its success was the, was the mark of its trueness, mm -hmm. <laughs> you see. The Ummah. Yeah, yeah, the uh, Ummah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's exemplified or, or, or um, symbolized by the fact that Islamic history marked year one, not as the, as the year that Muhammad was born, mm -hmm. not as the year that Muhammad died, not even as the year that Muhammad had the revelation that yeah. turned him from an ordinary human into the prophet, the messenger of God. No, year one was the year that the Muslims left Mecca and went to Medina mm -hmm. because that's the, the period in which they were able to begin actually and practically trying out this idea about the community. Would it work? Could the community really operate the way that, you know, Muhammad was preaching that it should, that God said it should? Mm -hmm. And it's amazing, you know, prosperity in the immediate after that. Within a hundred years, it was yeah. the, the biggest political... Yeah entity that had ever existed yeah. up until that point. Yeah. Uh, so that was completely remarkable. Anybody who was living in that event, um, it's no surprise that they would think, yeah, this is something, good this, stuff. Is, yeah. this is something supernatural happening. I'm part of that. So, you know, when, when, uh, when, the, uh, when the time came that a reviving Muslim world 
which was built on the uh, restoration narrative. Mm -hmm. We were right. Let's get back to what mm -hmm. we were doing. That was the truth. When they discovered that in their own societies, there were these people that had come and said, hey, could we trade a few things for a few things of yours? And now suddenly they were everywhere and, they, <laughs> and you had to go to them to get a license if you wanted to do business. What yeah. was that all about? So that's the thing that, uh, that was, from the Muslim point of view, that was a... Um, um, you know that was the event of the age, mm -hmm. the the struggle with these, with this other. It's not just uh, a struggle with some conquering people because they didn't, for the most part, come with armies. It wasn't the war. It was a struggle with some other idea yeah. that, for some strange reason, was winning, and yeah. it was like it couldn't win. How could that idea win? Mm -hmm. There must be something that we're doing wrong, or or something. Whereas you can easily see why from the from the uh, Western point of view it was hardly noticeable that they were having a, a struggle mm -hmm. <laughs> you know it's like I don't think uh, the, the Western Europeans that came to uh, uh, the Islamic world spent very much time at all saying now this idea seems stronger than ours why or you know yeah. or, let's our idea is better than this be, yeah. idea <laughs> this idea just didn't even exist this was what the natives thought you know of course they were wrong mm -hmm. look yes. at who's who's in whose country <laughs> exactly we're we're here yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, that's a fun. I mean, I like the idea of the progress versus kind of reformation yeah. narratives, and I think the progress one, I just super super agree with. Um, so I'm currently writing this book called What Information Wants, yeah. uh, and it's you know about um, genes and memes and how there are these ideas that spread through society, and that some of those ideas, all these ideas need um, attention and they need capital and they need like you know progress, and if they don't, then they they die. And so with um, religions, we can see it very clearly with stuff like jihad turning from struggle into like an active like let's actually go conquer other places. And with you know Christianity, you can see it through having lots of kids or through with Catholicism or through missionary work or those kind of things. But I think you're super correct into saying that capitalism as a similar kind of ideology, it has this progress narrative or this development narrative, which it still wants to fuel itself. And in order to do that, it needs to quote unquote what it sees as make progress, aka make development happen, aka industrialize all the things, you know? Yeah. Um, is that kind of in alignment with how you see that progress narrative? It, it is. Yeah. And you know, the, the progress narrative was so successful that in the Islamic world and pretty much in, throughout what used to be called the developing world, yeah. you know, that's that's a, uh, an obsolete term in a lot of ways now, but throughout the world that was lagging behind, people would argue with the with the social mores of the West, but they wanted the industry, you know, they wanted the cars. And it struck me so forcefully, the first time I went back to uh, Afghanistan after 38 years, which was in 2001, right mm -hmm. after 9-11. And um, uh, that city was clamorous with cars. It was polluted, it was like full of, and there was hurry and bustle and, you know, it had been ruined, reduced to rubble in the wars, but um, still it was like just clamorous. And I remembered the city I left and I remembered that it was so quiet there and it was so private mm -hmm. and uh, everything that was worth anything was happening inside mm -hmm. the private world. And it struck me that nobody in that world would have traded the world they were living in for this world. But nobody ever had that choice. What they did have a choice of 
in that world was, do you want a car? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. I want this world with a car. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know? And then before long, everybody, you know, game yeah. theoretically, oh, everybody accidentally got a car. Oh, now the world kind of sucks, right. you know. And now there's yeah. a traffic jam and I can't get out of it. Exactly. <laughs> I was reminded of that in, in when I was in Cairo recently. And it was like, I, I kind of talk about Cairo as a city with 20 million people in one park. You know, it's kind of it's like one what? One park. <laughs> it's like tons and tons of people, all these big towers. It's just like you can, and there's one park that you can go to, and you have to pay to get in. You know, and so it's just like it's like oh boy. And it wasn't that that was the choice of anybody, but that's just what happens to these yeah. big cities. So let's let's kind of zoom in on Afghanistan for a second. And I guess we have this kind of big macro narrative of you know the kind of Islamic narr- you know uh, story versus the you know uh, Western kind of Roman story. Um, and then it, Afghanistan is a part of that, is a, a sub part of that. Tell me, um, I guess, you know, I really loved your term of games without rules. Um, kind of tell me a little bit more about, like, I guess maybe the easiest way to do this is to say, what is the, <laughs> what is the short history of Afghanistan? How does games without rules kind of play into that history? Well, you know, uh, the, the, the part of Afghan history that I really focused in on was the part that... Uh, began around the same time that the, U- that the United States was born. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, because Afghanistan was born as a country right around that same time. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, <clears throat> what was the first guy's name again? The, like the... Ahmad Shah Baba. There's him, and then there's also... I thought there was a guy in like 1830 or something. With that, oh, something. Well, there was Dus Mohammad. Uh, Mohammad is, I think. Yeah, Dus Mohammad Khan. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, these are all big, big characters. That's yeah. true. The uh, Afghan history is full of like really... Um, uh, each of them could be a movie. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you know? exactly. So, so sorry to interrupt, but yes, yeah, so there's it's it starts there. In, you know. Right. So uh, you know, before that, there's all there's often been something in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, um, it is just as much a distinct place in which uh, some sort of imperial form or state form constantly takes shape as is, let's say, Iran. There's always been some kind of Iranian mm-hmm. empire. I, by always, I, I don't yeah. mean since the Big Bang. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, but there's always been something there. That's, uh, so Afghanistan is one of those. And, it's, and where it is, is it's between India, Iran, where the Turks lived, and over there, China. So it's, it's where people went through to get to other places. And there's something about Afghanistan that is that is quintessentially that. Mm. Um, you know, I, I say in Games Without Rule, but I'm going to repeat it, uh, quote myself. Yeah. Um, this idea that Afghanistan can't be conquered is total nonsense. Afghanistan has been conquered again and again. And uh, the people who conquered it are those are called Afghans now. Mm-hmm. They're all from someplace else. Even the, the Pashtuns who are often considered, those are the real Afghans. No, until uh, recent times, you know who they thought they were? They thought they were the lost tribes of Israel. Mm. They thought they were uh, the two that got lost or one of those. You know, they, they claim they came from someplace else. And um, so, but in the period when I'm, that I'm talking about, that's when the modern state started to form. Yeah. And that modern state started to form exactly when this other drama we're talking about, Western civilization coming into the Islamic world mm-hmm. and, uh, and the, uh, the uh, 
confrontation between two ideas, one of which was overwhelmingly more powerful than the other. That's exactly when the state formation of Afghanistan began. Mm -hmm. And Afghanistan is like a, uh, an example of a, um, of a process that I described in, um, in Destiny Disrupted, uh, which is that in the, uh, in the attempt to figure out what, why are we not succeeding, we Muslims, mm -hmm. against this ideology that is not uh, Islam, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if we're going to reject the idea that Islam is actually turns out to have been false, mm -hmm. which is an idea which I think did not enter the head of any Afghan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no Afghan thought that. And I think generally throughout the Islamic world, that's not one of the things people thought. So the three things that, the, the, well, the three, there's probably many different things people thought, but in general, three of the directions that people took in, in groping and, uh, you know, and grappling with yeah. this conundrum, one was, we've been too literal about our religion, we've been too, uh, you know, wrapped up in the outward forms of religion, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, we should rethink our religion as a system of ethics and morals mm -hmm. and, uh, and fundamental rules, and this will allow us, you know, to become secular, mm -hmm. um, so that uh, people would look at um, the... Um, People like my father, for example, you know, he, he's, he would look at the, uh, uh, the scriptures and say, he told me this exactly, he said, Bachim, my boy, Islam is fundamentally you be a good neighbor, you be a good human, you be a good friend, you don't lie, you don't cheat. If you do those things, that's what it means to be a good Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, I like to call my father that kind of fundamentalist. Yeah. Said, that's a kind of fundamentalist. <laughs> yeah. and, um, but like many people, one of, you know, it's like many scholars in the Muslim world who are modernist in that way look to um, the uh, the various, uh, you know, to the Quran, to the Hadith, and then to the other scriptural sort of commentaries, and they look for ways in which the modern values of Western civilization were not, are not contradicting what was said in the, in the, in the Quran. So my father would say, um, you know, um, it says you can have up to four wives if you can treat them exactly equally. Mm -hmm. My son, it's impossible Tough, for any yeah. man to treat four different women exactly equally. He's right about that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, and my father, who enjoyed a glass of wine in his day, um, or even perhaps a, 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 a shot of whiskey, mm -hmm. he said, look, here in the Quran it says uh, don't go to your uh, uh, prayers if you're intoxicated, mm -hmm. it means you can be intoxicated, just not <laughs> at prayer time. Don't get drunk before you go to the mosque. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, all of that kind of analysis um, is uh, uh, is sort of like catching up, or they're, mm -hmm. they're playing catch up. Um, but a a whole demographic. Um, emerged in, in Muslim societies, and, and now I'll just turn to Afghan society. Yeah. You know, in Afghan society, there emerged an, an elite mm -hmm. uh, who were oriented towards this thing I called secular developmentalism in, in, uh, in, in destiny. They, they wanted to find a way that they could be uh, Muslims and still have industry, basically, mm -hmm. <laughs> and still have you know, all of the things, roads and power plants and so on. So in Afghanistan, 
the, the problem that, that exists for every ruler is that they have to present themselves to the inner Afghanistan, to the rural and countryside Afghanistan, where the, uh, where the idea of Islam is so intertwined mm -hmm. with the traditions and cultural ways of tribal uh, life and clan life that has developed in Afghanistan over thousands of years, mm -hmm. uh, it's so interwoven with that that that's going to be a conservative and inward-looking bloc. And anybody who wants to rule Afghanistan once these Western empires were coming would have to represent themselves as the guarantor and the protector mm -hmm. and the hero of Afghan Islam mm -hmm. to the inner world, yeah. but as the modern-looking, suit-wearing guys who spoke a foreign language to the imperial powers. Mm -hmm. Every single Afghan uh, ruler of, from then on had to have that dual face, that, mm -hmm. that Janus face. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, periodically in Afghan history, this is why the, the subtitle of Games Without Rules is the often interrupted history of Afghanistan. Yeah. Within Afghanistan, whoever's in charge is always trying to find a way to consolidate the country so it can be one country uh, under the uh, rule of one state, mm -hmm. a national centralized state. Uh, so it has been st sort of making progress, but it makes a little progress and then something happens to interrupt it. And it's always one or another of these outside powers who decides to get inside Afghanistan and, and fix it. Yeah. Uh, Without and, understanding this dual face thing that they need to do. Right. Yeah. And, they, and, they, and they have regularly decided to do this by uh, putting in their guy in the seat of power mm -hmm. and then trusting that he will rule it in the way that they want him to rule it. This has not worked one single time. It's really remarkable how every time they've done the same thing and every time it's failed in the exact same way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in the 1840s or so, uh, the, uh, the British started mm -hmm. and they yeah. took out Dost Mamad and uh, he was like such a successful uh, builder of nation state. Mm -hmm. And he was successful at that because he knew how to operate diplomatically mm -hmm. with all of the tribal elements in the country. So he was not just a conqueror. He was like a, he was a slick politician <laughs> and he was very good at internal politics. They believed that he was going to, uh, he was too independent. They thought a, a guy that independent, he's going to um, bring the Russians in. Yeah. So they took him out and they stuck their guy in who was an incompetent, uh, but, uh, you know, he had, uh, from anything that the British could see... He was a good bureaucrat or something. No, yeah. not, oh. not just that. He had just as good uh, legitimacy in, in dynastic terms mm. as the guy they took out. He was also the grandson or some, you know, close mm. relative of Ahmad Shah Baba. So they thought, well, this is what... A ruler of Afghanistan, that's what the ruler has to portray. So they took him out and they put the, their own guy in. Um, and he was all that legitimacy and stuff, but nobody considered him the ruler of Afghanistan. Why? 
because the British had put him in there. He couldn't govern uh, the country. It wasn't that the country united and as one kicked out the British. No, they just said, we're not going to obey this. Yeah, this guy. random guy. Yeah, he's a, so so the country sort of fragmented and everybody started fighting the central power, whoever the central power was, and it, that was the British essentially. Mm. So finally, they gave up and put uh, the original guy back, mm. and um, then th- thirty years later or so, eighteen seventies, uh, they tried it again. They took out one guy and they put in another guy, and same thing happened. They they just couldn't do it. <clears throat> And it was always the, 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 the question of they could rule the, the cities because they could move their troops mm-hmm. in. That was a, but the countryside is big and open and mm-hmm. you know who knows where everybody is. They just couldn't govern. Yeah. So they gave it back to a strong man. Mm-hmm. The strong man was the strongest strong man that ever lived. You know, he was like a really scary guy. And I'm afraid there's another one of those maybe coming. Mm-hmm. So his name was Abdurrahman, and he said, I am uh, going to reduce the, uh, you know, rural, tribal mm. Afghanistan to be absolutely under my control. He was, it was a reign of terror, and he just completely put in a whole new set of bureaucrats, state control, all that stuff. Every single person in, in the country had to have a... a Certificate yeah. of you know identity card. Uh-huh. I have one still. You know, I'm here. There's still an identity card for me in a in a Lock box or something. Yeah. In a box yeah. in a building in Kabul yeah. with my father's thumbprint on it. Yeah, God. And um, um, you know, so nobody could travel without permission. There were spies everywhere. So many people were killed. The executions were horrifying. But he got it, you know, he got the country down to where he ruled it. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, then they could rule. And what happened? They began to look out, say, okay, now we have to try to uh, make ourselves, make nice with the people out there. Within about three kings, you got this guy, Amon Allah. And he actually went and traveled in Europe and he said, hey, this is good, let's make Afghanistan more like this. He came back and he did all the things that a social progressive would want, he, uh, mm-hmm. and that people of my social class and my group in Kabul, this is what we want. You know, mm-hmm. they he banned child uh, uh, marriage, he banned mm-hmm. the dowry system, mm-hmm. which had always turns into some kind of bride selling mm-hmm. kind of a thing. This is like 1930s through 70s kind this of thing? This was the 1920s. I mean, 1920s, okay, right, yeah. around the 1920s. It was started, 1920s, yeah. and he uh, abolished the, the the veil, you know, yeah. the chaudari, the body bag mm-hmm. thing they call a burqa. Yeah. <laughs> um, he just said, no more, that's absolutely done with that. <laughs> the country revolted, you know, it opened the opportunity for the, um, for the uh, uh, rural conservatives and other, you know, British or whatever other outside forces came in to help them out. And they overthrew that king. And there was a nine-month reign of exactly like the Taliban, mm-hmm. just exactly what the Taliban are. And then the royal family came back. They reclaimed the throne. Mm-hmm. And the guy who reclaimed it, his first move was to make sure everybody knew he was as powerfully conservative a Muslim as anybody had ever seen. There was under him a ministry of vice and virtue and they walked around in the streets, uh, their agents, and if you were uh, a woman out there without a veil, mm-hmm. 
you grabbed and put back in your house. Your, your men were folk would come and get your woman, don't yeah. let her out here. Um, and uh, if you were eating outdoors in the month of fast, you got a beating. Yeah. Uh, so he was a tough guy, and he was, to all appearance, he was just as conservative as could be. But in fact, once he established that role, mm -hmm. I mean, he was soon assassinated once his son, <laughs> once his son, you know, once the family had established that rule, they began doing what Afghan rulers have done as soon as they really secure their power. They started trying to modernize and, mm -hmm. uh, and move towards social progress. Mm -hmm. And by the time my mother uh, came to the country, which is in 1945, they just started the first girls' school. Mm -hmm. She was a teacher in that school. And within uh, another 10 years, <clears throat> there was girls' schools all over the country. And by 1959, uh, the first experiment in co-education happened in Afghanistan. One girl went to a school that had uh, probably 200 boys oh, in it. Yeah. <laughs> and that one girl was my sister. Wow. And she was, you know, she didn't, uh, the veil had not had been, uh, not outlawed, but the mandate for a veil had been abolished. Mm -hmm. Nobody had to wear a veil. And so she wore a black dress, stockings, uh, the sleeves came down to her uh, wrists, but bare hands, bare face, and she wore a chada. And that was like as far as they was, were going to go at that moment. But they, that's how far they went, you know, mm -hmm. like baby steps. Mm -hmm. The king said, we have to walk. Uh, if, we, if we walk, we'll always move and we'll move forward. Mm -hmm. If we run, we'll fall and break our uh, legs and we won't go anywhere. So... That happened, and then in 1978, yeah. the uh, the Communist Party over overthrew the um, uh, the royal dynasty, and it was a very small group. It was probably I don't know how many communists there really were, but not that many, mm -hmm. and they were purely urban, mm -hmm. and they had they they immediately began the most extreme program of social progressive mm. uh, um, laws mm -hmm. enforced by military mm -hmm. that anybody could imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, they went to villages and they grabbed, you know, they were, they, and I, I, I have this account from, from a woman uh, who, um, you know, she was an Afghan woman. She was in Kabul. Later she came here and, and uh, you know, so she saw this with her own eyes. Yeah. Um, they would send the troops in to a village and say, bring out your women. Hmm. Uh, we're going to take them off and educate them. Okay. For the guys in those villages, it's like the government comes with soldiers, give us your women. Yeah. That's not a good look. <laughs> that's not a good look. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty soon, you know, within no time at all, there's, there is a rebellion everywhere. Not to mention, there already was to match the communists, there were Islamists. There was that was the '60s in Afghanistan. The radicals were not, the student radicals were not all lefties. Yeah. <laughs> the student radicals were just as much righties, mm -hmm. and so the Islamists were there. So the country blew up, and they had no choice but to bring in the Soviets. And the Soviets had sort of no choice but to come in, or their their little proxy government would be gone. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, now these guys ha were their their backs were against the wall, <clears throat> and the Soviets decided 
they did the same thing. Held the cities, countryside was was rebelling. Mm -hmm. They eviscerated the countryside. Mm -hmm. They they bombed it. They strafed the the herds. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, they uh, they they did what they could to empty the the villages because that's where the guerrillas were finding their safe refuge. Yeah. You couldn't tell a gorilla from a villager because they looked remarkably similar. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and what happened was six million refugees in in Pakistan, another six or so mm -hmm. in in Iran. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing is, though, and you know, this is not often really remarked upon. But the thing is, those refugees in those places were not families. Mm -hmm. They were the women and children of families. Mm. The men of those families were still in the country fighting. Mm. So what you got was this 10-year period where the Afghan men were living in a, in a world that was all men yeah. and, and whose only business was war. Yeah. And the women and children were living in these squalid refugee camps where they, because of lots of reasons, but culture being among them, they couldn't show their faces outside these tiny little, mm -hmm. you know, places, warrens that they could live in. Ten years, that's where the uh, kids grew up and they became the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they, a friend of mine who was delivering UN aid and stuff, and he was a photographer, he came back, I saw all these pictures of children. You know, you, you keep, they just look like kids. He said, man, if you know these guys, they're... These are damaged kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These guys are going to be trouble. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's, so. And before diving into the like the exact like like you know the last like month or whatever with Afghanistan, I think I, I want to reflect on a little bit of what you said there. Um, a this you know this this beautiful thing of you know in the games without rules for me I just love that as a as a phrase which is like the. Um, you know, in the more rural places, um, in the countryside, in the, the mountains or whatever, it's like this classic collectivist kind of bottom-up, like, you just know the people who are around you, and it's like, it's, that's the game without rules, where it's like, everybody kind of knows this social structure, but like, when you come in as a Westerner on the outside, you're like, what's happening here? We need to go to the ministry or whatever. It's like, well, we don't do things that way. It's like, you talk exactly. to people, you find out what's going on, you shoot the shit, whatever, you know, and then eventually yeah. stuff gets done, right? And so like, that huge difference, um, I just I want to highlight, and I just love that Games Without Rules. The other thing that I think your book showed me is that um, both, uh, is that just thinking of, you know, I love the off-interrupted history of Afghanistan, where it's like, hey, it's this middle ground place, and, um, you know, it's had, you know, a bunch of different rulers in it, or a bunch of different um, barbarian-ish types, or whatever. There's the mob, or there's the, is the, like, Muslim folks initially with caliphates, and then there was the Mongols later, and then there were um, the Turks to some extent. I'm not sure how much I know about that one. And then there was the great game between the British and the um, Russians, which is just, like, so rough for Afghanistan. You're kind of in, it's just like, Part of, you know, colonialism is sad in many ways. That one is just like, oh man, you're just in between these two countries. Um, and then there's the the one in the um, after World War II with the Cold War, where it's like you have U.S. and um, Soviets who are again doing this, like a, a pseudo new kind of great game That's there. Right, yeah, um, exactly. And yeah, and so it just it feels. Um, to, and, and as you say, there it's like there's this beautiful version of Afghanistan, which is you know the guy in the 20s and 30s kind of pushing stuff up, and then your sister going to school for the first time. It's like yeah, you got to walk before you can run. you got to do evolution, not revolution. But then what either the West sees or what, you know, the, the Russian saw is just like, oh, no, 
these women need they need to be wearing you know like um tank tops and short shorts now you know it's like yeah wait a second like let's like let's work with the people there to kind of um do this in a more because when you go too fast you get these and the traumatic experiences that the men there had and the women and the the children in these refugee camps that just creates these yeah trauma laden kids who then go on to be rough in society so That'll make sense to me. And then tell me, like, if we think about, like, the U.S. involvement in the last, because um, some of the listeners might be specifically interested in that. It's like, okay, what we saw from the Western media was like, oh, man, the U.S. has been there for 20 years. Now we're out, skis, mission accomplished, but we got to kind of run. Um, and now the Taliban are back. Did we make any progress? How do you kind of see the U.S. getting out as a, a similar part of this pattern that's existed? Or how do you, how do you kind of understand the, the last two months in Afghanistan or last kind of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan? Well, you know, first of all, I would say I wrote... Uh, uh, I'm going to go back a little bit here. But, yeah, yeah. but I'm getting... I'm, to, I'm good. I like, I like the historical to, perspective. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to go back to 2012 when I, when I was uh, writing Games Without Rules. I was, I was hurrying to get it out because the presidential election was coming up. Mm-hmm. I'm Vietnam era guy, and I know that oh, America's at war. That's going to be a huge hot issue in the election. Actually, it was never mentioned even once by either candidate in that election. It's unbelievable. And right before that, somebody asked me at a party, say, "Oh, what are you working on these days?" I said, "Well, I'm writing a history of Afghanistan." The show. I got that far, and I realized they'd stopped listening. They heard the word Afghanistan. I was like, "Oh God, boring. I don't want to do that." This was not the forever war. This was the unobserved. It was aggressively unnoticed. Mm. It was the aggressively forgotten war. It's unbelievable to me that people in these 20 years are not aware that there was a war going on and it was a savage war. It was a war in which people were dying in, in horrible ways, but not in the cities. I, you know, I went back 10 years after 9-11 and Kabul, you could walk around anywhere. The sense of tension was everywhere, Whoa. but you were not, you know, nothing happened to me. I, <laughs> I walked around. <laughs> You're here now. Yeah, yeah I'm here now. Yeah. Um, so you could already see that, that something was going wrong, I'd say, in, in 2012. And uh, <clears throat> I think the policy people knew that because the argument was continually, should we put in more troops? Mm-hmm. And... Um, the word Taliban was often used, and I thought it was misused because just because the word uh, suggests a particular group, mm-hmm. so that the syndrome was to read in the news, ah, they got the number 12 guy, now they yeah, got the exactly. number 3 guy, <laughs> exactly. now they got the number 34 guy, <laughs> as if that's what it was, mm-hmm. you know, as if there was some structure there and that if you could get rid of that spider, that organism, then everything would be fine. But actually, the problem was Talibanism. Mm -hmm. And Talibanism was some kind of melange of, you know, the idea of Islam plus the idea of the old Afghanistan, you know, the old tribal Afghanistan plus, you know, just all of that stuff. And to the extent that the the violence and the bloodshed was not stopping all the throughout the country in the in in 2012 when I went you could not drive from a major city to another major city you 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 were you were to fly mm. actually I did drive for, you know, or we did a bunch of us from 
Kabul to uh, to Bamiyan in central Afghanistan, but uh, the uh, the plans were laid, and we were told, you know, just be ready. And on a certain midnight, the call came that tomorrow at six we're leaving Go. because they didn't want the word to get out mm -hmm. so that nobody along the way would uh, set up an ambush. Mm -hmm. And then we got to Bamiyan, and it was fine. There. Once we got there, that was fine. Everybody, we were there. Um, so Afghanistan was like that, the cities, and then there was the country. And it's like, this war is not going where it should. Um, right around then was also when it ramped up into drone warfare. Mm -hmm. and, and the drone warfare, I think, enabled the American public to even more uh, just not notice it. Mm -hmm. Because in fact, the the uh, <clears throat> the casualties on the American side, f considering the, the the savagery of the war, the, the American casualties were, were very small, and so people could could afford not to notice it. And then too, unlike the Vietnam era when there was a draft, people like me were like, oh, we we hate this war. We might be there. Now, it's it's supposedly you know it's like a professional army, but what it means is. Uh, the volunteers that that sign up are people who are they they have economic uh, difficulties yeah, and this a class, is a way out. The lower class folks it's a, versus it's a lower class, class yeah. thing. Yeah. So what you have a lot of like uh, rural <clears throat> poor folks from America yeah. get into the army. They go to Afghanistan, so it's poor poor country boys from America <laughs> fighting poor country yeah. boys from Afghanistan, and elites on both sides just un unaware, mm -hmm. unnoticing, not mm -hmm. at all, it just isn't happening. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and then, you know, uh, the way the war was launched, it was necessary to rally public support for war, and that's, you always need to have a noble purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can't, uh, it's diff politically difficult to, uh, to, especially in a democracy, to have a war in which your stated purpose is, uh, you know, to increase gun sales and uh, uh, you know, put a base in, in some place where you can get some minerals, yeah. whatever. Yeah. That's not the way you can sell a war. So here, because of the Taliban and their depredations, it was a ready sell. You know, it's like we're going to save the women of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And so it was a noble war. And so the left was on board. Mm -hmm. And then the right was like, these are the Muslims, the Sharia. You yeah. want Sharia? You want your daughters to be... Uh, so then from the right, it was like the noble war. We're fighting the infidels. Mm -hmm. So all of that n nobility, uh, you know, all that's, that self-congratulatory... thou, yeah. Yeah, that, that, uh, that accrued to the war. It became the good war. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so that was all the more reason why nobody paid attention. And when the... Uh, so now we're talking about... Uh, August and September, mm -hmm. we're, we're this year. Mm -hmm. um, what I keep hearing is they they left so suddenly. It's like, wait, the withdrawal was originally set for 2014. Mm -hmm. How sudden is that? Mm -hmm. How could nobody? You know, we weren't ready. Mm -hmm. How could you not be ready? This is eight years later. Um, yeah, but it was all the troops were yanked out. With there were only 2,500 troops. Mm -hmm. That's not like. Dealt. They'd been withdrawing all the time. Yeah. When the Taliban took the cities suddenly within a, 
yeah. a month, they they took them basically without a fight. There was fighting in Herat and some in Kondos, but basically they walked into those cities. Mm-hmm. And everybody was waiting for that, uh, I think, out there in the cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially, you know, where the war had been hot in the Helmand Valley and Lashkargah and Kandahar and places like that. Mm-hmm. Ordinary people were like, we don't care who wins. Can we just please stop? Um, and so the Taliban had... Uh, a, um, a, uh, uh, a, a program they were running on mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that was very popular. If we win, the war stops. It's not clear that that's true, mm-hmm. but that certainly, I'm sure, felt true yeah. to people. Yeah. And, you know, one last thing I want to uh, say, go back now to drones and, mm-hmm. and to the war, Back then in, in 2012, you know, 2010, 11, in, in that period, there was some discussion about how the soldiers, how the American soldiers should be, should be armed, you know, how they should be clad when they went into battle in Afghanistan. And uh, it was, um, you know, uh, uh, understandably thought that every piece of body armor they could have they should have. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you want that. You know, you want your soldiers to survive. But when you looked at a soldier, you saw a guy from an uh, uh, alien from outer space. Yeah. They didn't look like the humans that that uh, people in the villages. So, quite apart mm-hmm. from anything about democracy, these guys were saying, or Islam, these guys. Apart from ideologies, like these guys are humans, and what are these guys? Mm-hmm. I don't know what they are. Both sides are lobbing bombs. People, when the fight is over, your relatives are dead. Yeah. You're going to feel like the war is those guys coming to our place because they're from someplace else and you're at home. Yeah. And uh, the drones only ex- exacerbates that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because the drones are like... <laughs> yeah, it's like that's even more alien of a thing. <laughs> yeah, they're, what, they're just the bombs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's so. interesting. I think that there's a... I mean, I, I definitely agree. I mean, the drones and then this this whole macro narrative of like, yeah, what what controls the news cycle and stuff like that. It's like, yeah, that, that you know, Afghanistan, um, after the very, very beginning, essentially, everybody was like, I don't really want to talk about that kind of thing. And especially, as I, I think I like the phrasing of, you know, the poor rural boys from both places essentially were fighting each other while the elites were doing, were just doing their own thing. Yeah. Um, that seems directionally correct. One thing that I didn't quite understand, both from... The book Destiny Disrupted and from like modern day Afghanistan is, you know, you talk about like the Taliban and, and for me something that's been a learning over the last, you know, couple, you know, a little bit of time as I've like read more about um, the Middle East and Islam is like, okay, you had, um, is, the, is, is like how kind of um, this kind of Islamic, what I would traditionally call Islamic extremism or what I might now call um, Salafism or Wahhabism or whatever. And so it's like you have this. Uh, or, or kind of a response to Western decadence, you know. You have the um, Western decadence happening, you have modernity happening, modernity, quote-unquote, and then you have this kind of pushback from Wahhab, and then Wahhab plus the Saudis creating this new state, and then kind of like Petro-Islam or whatever, kind of pushing Wahhabism out into the world. Um, and then Salafism is maybe like the nice term of Wahhabism, and it's like these versions of, and I think that they do a really, as far as I can tell, like Wahhabism does a really good job of Saying, hey, there's Dar al Islam, the you know the land of peace or whatever, and then Dar al Harb, maybe something like the land without um, without Islam, without peace. 
and like creating those two worlds and then saying we want to create the world of peace um and so that feels like a powerful meme to spread and something but like why is it the case that kind of wahhabism or the taliban or these kinds of things are so kind of in my mind like powerful as these like um cultural uh, entities you know like yeah why are they so powerful well um i think that um there's a question of identity here mm-hmm. and uh you know i'll, I'll quote myself now again i just wrote a an, uh, a piece re- responding to the things that happened and uh, um, what I would say is you know the uh, um, the Afghanistan that the West first the Soviets then the Americans uh, that they wanted to put in place here was one in which the majority of Afghans really rural Afghans but there's also a lot of urban Afghans they looked at that society and they didn't see it they didn't see themselves in there. Yeah, they saw a story in which they were not a character. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think um, you know, identity, uh, human identity, is is the ability to see a character, to see a story that your society is is playing out, in which you're an important character. You might not be important even, but a meaningful character. You know who you are in that in that story. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know. Uh, uh, I think that uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the power of um, the jihadist narrative in the Islamic world comes from the fact that it's tapping uh, a narrative that has already been almost like a childhood nursery rhyme folktale for Muslim kids. They grow up with that with that uh, with that story of the thing that happened in Medina long ago mm. where the guy went into a cave and an angel said you are going to speak for God from now on and you know your world is full of warfare but we're going to tell you how people should live and this war is going to end mm-hmm. this is the this is the the mythos of you know the the Islamic story and then he went and he gathered his followers and Medina said yes yes please come teach us how to live and he issued the laws mm. and people, the biggest empires on earth, the Byzantines, you know, the, the Persians, the, yeah. the, the superpowers of the time, they tried to crush this little group and they failed because mm. God was on the side of this, this little community whose only real power was they were doing it right. Mm-hmm. So that's like a, uh, that's like a bedtime story. Yeah. For, for kids. So when you go up, the structure of that narrative is there. Now somebody comes and says, hey, the world is divided into Dar al-Harb and Dar al-Islam. You know, uh, and yes, Islam looks like it's been beaten down and there's only a few of us left, but some of us are go- are have rediscovered the, the golden mm-hmm. uh, you know, apple and uh, <laughs> whatever. And, and we're going to start to do that again. We're going to live just the way they did in Medina and then it'll happen. It'll happen. So there's like a, there's like a supernatural belief there, a magical yeah. belief. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. That makes me, I think that's a great, I mean, you want a narrative that you want to believe in and that that narrative that you've been told kind of fits well with the, the narrative that, or the, the childhood narrative kind of fits well with these kind of, um, the like jihadist narratives or whatever. And I think it's, it makes me think a little bit about, I think this might be a little bit 
of like me being like too mean or something to like the jihadists or something like that. But like, um, it reminds me a bit of like the some folks have talked about um, the uh, Trump uh, kind of uh, January sixth um, riot and stuff like that. It's like an example in like LARPing. Um, do you know? Have you heard that term before? No. It I... means live action role playing, and it's when you're kind of. People will do it when they go out into the park and they oh, put yeah. on their like medieval costumes and they'll fight each other. And it's like they're playing pretend that they're in this old world. And there's something about like you know at the Capitol when you had the guy with the um, with the with furs, the shaman. yeah, the shaman guy. Like he was larping. You know, he yeah. was he was there. He was like doing a thing that technically, from their little weird perspective, it was like oh they're taking back. They're like they're, it was a steal. All these things. And they were, and they some, so that they memed this like weird reality into existence. And like, similarly, that, that sounds kind of similar exactly. to this. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. what it is. You know, it's like the role of narrative is something that we really have to think about this. Um, you know, you were talking about information wants uh, uh, certain things. Uh, and, and when you say it that way, you're representing information as having willpower. And uh, I have a version of that myself in which I would like to say that narrative is exactly analogous to a biological organism. And it has a a will to survive and it has a will to prosper. Uh, And and so then the question that this is the main thing I think about these days, actually. And And the question comes up, how could that be since, in fact, um, you know, a narrative doesn't exist without the people who are telling the story. But I think that um, individuals, uh, you know, I, I think that actually uh, n- narrative is how we are able to see the world at all. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I think here we can actually ask the scientists if they agree, the neural scientists, and they'll say, yeah, we agree. Because you don't, uh, our perception is not like a video screen that just is reality, we have senses that go out, sample, 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 this little bit, this little bit, and they feed it into a model we've built yep. inside of our heads. And then we're, our, our responses are based on how that fits in the model, and if the response brings us uh, uh, good things, then okay, the model must be right. And if it leads to some harm, Oh, the model needs to be corrected. But the model is always what we're living inside of. Yeah. And the model is a narrative. The, the narrative is an unfolding story. So I think that in normal times, you know, when things are more or less the same every day, the narrative works. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, um, it helps us, uh, you know, it helps us classify new information coming to us as relevant or irrelevant, and or true or false, Mm -hmm. uh, and or good for me or harmful to me. Mm -hmm. And as long as things are more or less regular, then that's a good thing. That's how, uh, that's how we can function because we can't, we can't actually ask for evidence for every piece of information that comes in. We actually have to take things, uh, most things, uh, we have to our quick judgment of them have to be, does it fit with everything else I know? And if it does, then, okay, you can come in. You can mm-hmm. be part of my... Um, that's how narratives uh, keep themselves going. Because 
groups of people have narratives they share, mm-hmm. and groups of people, by virtue of their narr- of their shared narrative, have a group self, yeah. have a social self. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, the social self, when things are in in uh, in disarray, that social self is in is under threat of mm-hmm. extinction <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 because the narratives are not working. Everybody says this is what's happening, and they can't agree. So. Uh, people cluster to uh, the smallest, you know, the largest group that can totally agree, which becomes smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, it reminds me of a, a thing I think you wrote in Destiny Disruptor, which is like that of some, one of the super powerful things about the new kind of nation states around the, you know, 1500s Western Europe time was this ability, the shared language yeah. and that you would cut, you were like a knife, like a very, everybody was aligned in one direction. You would cut like a knife through bread and the bread was the kind of barbarians or whoever else, the empires that had all these like random people out there. So that's, I mean, again, I think I really like what you said about, you know, narratives as these organisms. And I think, um, yeah, they want to self-perpetuate and, uh, and we'll see how they do that. So thank you for your time today to me. I think that there's, I mean, so many juicy things for our listeners to dive into here. I think that um, as a reminder for our listeners, yeah, I mean, I've only read Destiny Disrupted, but the other, I've watched some talks about games without rules and I have the um, uh, the history of, uh, what was the, what's your, your latest book called? The Invention of Yesterday. The Invention of Yesterday, um, and which is a, a big history of, you know, 50,000 years. Um, again, I really think, I mean, this Destiny Disrupted is, uh, you know, um, Goodreads has like 4.4 stars. Like nothing is 4.4 stars. So I was like, okay, I got to read this. And all the, um, one of the great um, reviews for it at the bottom said, you know, this is a person who has been, it has a master's in, you know, um, uh, Middle Eastern studies. And this is the book that they give. This is both the most helpful f- book for them. And it's the one that they give to all beginners. So it's like, <laughs> it's a, uh, definitely check that out. Or the other Games Without Rules, if you want to look at Afghanistan. Or the 50,000 Years, um, The Invention of Yesterday, if you want to understand big history stuff. Uh, Tamim, is there anything else that you want to kind of leave our listeners with, um, either advice or um, books to check out or where to find you on the interwebs or any of that stuff? Uh, well, I, I'll just uh, say that people often mislabel uh, my book, the, the History of Yesterday. That's a trivial sort of a title. No, it's The Invention of Yesterday. And if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't make the subtitle what it was. I'd subtitle it... Uh, the human story from the Stone Age to the Virtual Age, mm-hmm. because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to look at history and say, is there some single story you can yeah. tell that is the human story? That's what I, I try to do there. And Love it. Uh, thank you so much. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Very interesting. Yeah, thank you again. And, and I'm just fingers crossed for... Uh, you know, Afghanistan in the long term to have this beautiful relationship between the rural parts and the urban parts and for it to be and for there to be less also like a little bit of like outsider like development is okay but like to in general allow the people there to kind of uh, self-determine things to some extent. Is that is that right? Or yeah? If they could have sovereignty and peace yeah. they would then pursue social progress. Yeah. I really really believe that. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, well, with that, thank you again to Meme, and thank you listeners for coming on today. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.